Well, hello everyone. Um, I'm Steve. I'm one of the leaders here. So uh, let me add my welcome to you as well. If you're a visitor, great to have you here. And um, great to have uh, the, the, I mean, Pam said it was a privilege for you to listen to me. So, <laughs> but it's a real privilege actually to be able to speak to you. So um, good morning. Right. We're continuing our uh, series. So we've, we've, we've been looking at a series of Go. Um, Jesus' command to us to go, and um, we're going to be looking at that series through the coming year, really, Um, and we're going to look at uh, Jesus' command uh, in Acts um, when he says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. So that was uh, Jesus' promise, stroke command that we'll receive power, and that we will go and we will be his witnesses. And he says we're going to go to Jerusalem, so we're going to go to the people that, that are close to us, our, in our community, our neighbours, our family, our, our close friends. We're going to go to Judea, so that's the people who are like us, who have the same kind of worldview as us, um, speak the same language. Um, we're going to go to those people. Uh, we're going to go to Samaria. We're going to go to the people that are near us, but who aren't like us who maybe traditionally we haven't got on well with or um, we've had disagreements with or we're not sure of, people that traditionally we might have been suspicious of. Jesus says, no, go to them, go to Samaria. And then Jesus says, just to cap it all off, big catch-all, go to the ends of the earth. The ends of the earth, go everywhere. Basically, the gospel is going to go everywhere. And that's the the promise that that, that had been through all of Scripture, from the Old Testament, that one day the knowledge of the glory of God will fill the earth. Yeah, amen. So that was Jesus' command. And we're going to look at that over the coming months. And we're going to look at what does it mean to go to those different places. And at the moment, we're looking at what does it mean to be sent to work? To be sent to work. And work almost encapsulates all of those things, doesn't it? Because at work, you've got people who, you, friends, I'm sure many of you have friends at work. Um, you have people who are like who like you. Maybe they're they studied similar things to you. They've got the same outlook in, uh, in life. But then there'll be people at work maybe that you don't get on with. People that you butt heads with. Mate, no, no, no one's nodding. Someone's nodding. But there might be people at work that you don't get on with. Or that people who are different to you have different religious beliefs or different outlook uh, on the world. Uh, and also there are people uh, from all over the world. We have the, the privilege of living in a country uh, that's cosmopolitan. And... Um, I know that some of you even travel around the world for your work, but we find people from around the world uh, in our day-to-day lives. And what do we mean by work? Uh, Are we just talking about an office with a computer? (coughs) No. We're talking about the place where you spend the majority of your time uh, day-to-day. That might be an office, but it might be a college, it might be a school. You could, I don't know, you might spend most of your time on a roof, fixing tiles on a roof. You might be a roofer. Um... It could be while you're shopping, you know, doing the weekly shop. Um, It could be standing at the side of a football pitch while your kids do football training or, you know, and you're you're chatting to the other mums and dads. Or it could be your job might be at the moment looking for a job. I know I've been there. Looking for a job is sometimes like a full-time job. Maybe the job centre is your place of work at the moment. But wherever wherever you're working, um, actually, um, what we're going to look at today is for you, there is provision for the mission. If Jesus is sending you into that place where you spend your time, 
Uh, today, we're going to look at a story in the Bible um, uh, uh, where we see that there is provision, unlimited provision, for the mission that God has sent you on. Now, uh, those of you that know myself, my wife Trudy, you, you, if, if you've met us, you'll probably look, you'll look at me and you'll say, hasn't he done well for himself? Yeah. All right, not... But, you know, it's true. You'll, you'll, look at, you'll look at Trudy, you'll look at me and you'll say, well, he's done well for himself. I think the phrase is, he's married above his station. Is that, is that fair to say? I've married above my... I'm like the chauffeur in Downton Abbey. You know that, you know, the chauffeur in Downton Abbey you know, that, that marries into the rich family. You, know. you see, um, you know, so Trudy, she's from a middle-class family. I'm from a lowly working-class family. And um, so when I, when I first started um, courting, dating Trudy, and I went to uh, stay with her and her family at Christmas, um, one of the things that they like to do is go for a walk. They like to go for a walk in the countryside. So after lunch, they say, OK, we're going to go for a walk. And I say, oh, why? Is your car broken down? <laughs> Something wrong with your car? No, this is, this is what middle class people like to do, apparently. <laughs> So they said, we're going to go for a walk. So we all assemble uh, to go for a walk. And I'm looking down and all of Trudy's family have got coats, like proper different coats on and waterproof coats and wellies and like hiking boots. And I look at myself and I've got a hoodie and I've got a pair of white trainers. And... um, I'm like, oh, okay, this is, this is new. You, might, you know, I'm from inner city London. We don't go for walks in the countryside. So we go out for a walk and they're all, you know, trudging along. And I'm slipping and I'm sliding and I've got mud all over my nice white new trainers and, and my hoodie soaked. And it was, a, it, was a, it was a lesson for me, not just in, um, you know, uh, uh, class politics, but it was a lesson for me. Actually, Steve, you need to be prepared. You need to be prepared. You, you know, going out on a walk on a walk in the countryside with white trainers and a hoodie is not prepared. I wasn't a, a Cub Scout or anything like that. So we're going to look at a story today where actually the disciples uh, were unprepared. The disciples were unprepared uh, for what was in front of them, and that story is the feeding, in the, often called the feeding of the five thousand. Actually, if you read to the end of the story, it says 5,000 men besides women and children. So it's actually the feeding of the 15,000 or 20,000 people in John chapter 6. So if you have a Bible or an app or something, why don't you flick to John chapter 6. Right, so let's read the first few verses. John, chapter 6, verse 1. Sometime after this, Jesus crossed to the far shore of the Sea of Galilee, that is, the Sea of Tiberias. And a great crowd of people followed him because they saw the signs he had performed by healing the sick. Then Jesus went up on a mountainside and sat down with his disciples. The Jewish Passover was near. Um, Now, this story, it's the only, only story of, about Jesus that's in all four of the Gospels. So we get lots of insight uh, about this story from, from the different historical accounts in the other Gospels. And actually what Matthew tells us in his account, in Matthew 14, uh, is that um, John the Baptist had just been killed. 
John the Baptist, Jesus' cousin, Jesus' partner in ministry, the kind of the one person in the whole nation who was helping to shoulder some spiritual responsibility uh, for what was going on, um, had been beheaded by a Herod. And it says that when Jesus heard this, he withdrew. So part of Jesus' reason for trying to get away from the crowds and travelling across this, uh, sea, the, the Sea of Galilee was, was because he was grieving. He was feeling vulnerable. He was feeling beaten up. He'd heard about, um, when he heard about John the Baptist being beheaded, he withdrew. Um, but more than that, Mark tells us that the disciples had just returned from being sent out. You know, Jesus sent the disciples out, said, go out, don't take anything with you. Go out, preach the kingdom, heal the sick. And they'd come back all excited. They said, Jesus, you never believe what's happened. We've, you know, we've uh, cast out demons and we've prayed for the sick. And they'd come back with this um, amazing report. But they'd also come back tired and exhausted. And Jesus uh, says to them in Mark 6, come, come with me by yourselves to a quiet place and get some rest. So that's the context here, that Jesus was trying to withdraw. He wanted some time to grieve. To process that his cousin, his partner in ministry had been killed. And also to give the disciples a chance to rest. Because they had been out preaching the gospel. And they hadn't had time to eat, hadn't had time to recover. And um, obviously then they arrive. Um, they, they, they cross over. And it, and it says in verse 5 that Jesus looks up and he sees a great crowd coming towards him. So they've withdrawn, they're exhausted, they look up, and they can see a crowd coming towards them. They can't escape this crowd, these, these people who are desperate uh, to see more miracles, uh, to, see, uh, to see more healing. Some of them want healing, some of them want miracles, but some of them actually probably just want entertainment. They want to see what Jesus will do. And as I read this this week, I was struck almost by my own insensitivity to God. Does that make sense? Like, actually, you know, God is thinking, yeah, there's Jesus. Um, but the people keep coming. They're, they're kind of oblivious to what's going on in, in his life. And, you know, they say familiarity breeds contempt. Um, but actually, sometimes I treat God like this big Alexa in the sky. Yeah, Alexa, play my favorite song. Alexa, I need, I need, you know, this and that and the other. But actually... God is a father who cares deeply for us, for his children to be with us. The Holy Spirit lives in us. Uh, the, he, uh, he, he wants to be with us. He wants to commune with us, to speak to us. To us. God is love, the Bible says, doesn't it? Uh, in 1 John. The, the, the Son, the Father, the Holy Spirit, they are love. They love us. They're not an imperson, impersonal like Jedi force, you know, like lift the rocks. and it, it, No, they are... They are, they are they, they're not impersonal. They love us. They want to be with us. And sometimes I realize, you know what? I, I miss that. And I have to intentionally, this week I've been intentionally, when I stop saying, Father, you're my father. You love me. Jesus, I know you're listening to me. I know that you're with me. And just connecting with um, the, the Trinity on that kind of personal level and not treating God like, like some kind of Alexa or, or genie in the sky. So, Jesus and his disciples, they see the crowd come in. It says they retreat up a mountain, but the crowd continues to follow. So we pick up in uh, the second half of verse 5. He said to Philip, where shall we buy bread for these people to eat? He asked this only to test him, for he already had in mind what he was going to do. 
where are we going to buy bread for these people to eat? So Jesus immediately, despite all that's going on in his life and all that's going on in the disciples' lives, he immediately takes responsibility for the crowd. I mean, didn't these people get themselves into this mess? Was it, isn't it their fault? Aren't they the ones that turned up with nothing to eat, that didn't plan, that didn't, that didn't pack, a, pack a lunch, you know, that, that had been chasing Jesus from town to town? Didn't they get themselves into this mess? Why should Jesus or anyone get them out of it? It's their own fault. They've got bad motives, they're inconsiderate. And yet Jesus, in his compassion, takes responsibility for them straight away. We need to feed these people. We need to buy bread for these people. And he already had a plan to do it. It's a bit like the story of the prodigal son, isn't it? You know the story of the prodigal son where uh, he, he wants, he says to his father, give me my inheritance. It's a story that Jesus told to illustrate the heart of God as a father to his children. He says to his, um, says to his father, give me, give me my inheritance now. I don't want to wait until you're dead. And the father gives him the money, gives him his inheritance. And the, the son goes off and wastes it all. Spends it on um, drink and prostitutes and runs out of money, ends up desperate and comes home again. And the father receives him. You know the story, yeah? He receives him, um, embraces him, puts a new robe on him, gives him a ring, throws a party for him. And yet, when you read that story, you say, well, this, yes, the son wasted the money, but in actual fact, the dad financed it all. The dad financed it all. The dad gave him the money in the first place, allowed him to do it, financed it. Um, because, because of that, that love for him. And actually, for us, you know, the grace of God, the grace of God for us, you know, even, even the, you know, God sustains us, even when we're walking in the opposite direction, even when we're wasting all that God's given us, he continues to love us, he continues to watch over us, he continues to provide for us um, because of his great grace and love for us. I don't know about you, but I am very, very pleased that Jesus is gracious like that. Time and time again, uh, that he has shown me that love and mercy and kindness and grace. So Jesus takes responsibility, but he also gives responsibility, doesn't he? So he turns to Philip and um, says to Philip, well, where shall we, where shall we buy bread for these people to eat? And it's like Jesus wants Philip to share in his joy. Jesus um, is doing the Father's work. He's changing lives. He's changing destinies. He's bringing God's love into people's life. He's bringing healing, freedom into people's lives. And he wants Philip to share that with him, doesn't he? And that's part of this series, part of what you know, Jesus is sending us to go. He wants us to share in his mission, not because he needs people to do it. He doesn't need foot soldiers. He wants us to share in his mission. He wants us to share in the joy that he has of extending God's love, of changing lives. And that's what Jesus described as his food. In John 4, he said, um, doing the Father's will was his food. That was like food to him. It was like sustenance to him. It was energizing to him. It was life-giving, invigorating. And Jesus wants that for us. He wants to share that with us. But the buck stops with Jesus, doesn't it? So although he gives us responsibility, ultimately he takes responsibility uh, for it all. 
years ago, um, when I was in between jobs, I, a friend of mine offered me some work. He was a builder and an electrician, and um, he offered me some work just, you know, and stuff like that. So it was, it was, uh, I really, I quite enjoyed it, actually. Um, but one of the things he got me to do, he said, right, I'm rewiring this house. You need to go around every socket, and you need to earth every socket. And he showed me how to do the first one. So I'm earthing the socket, and I made my way around each room, each socket in each room, earthing the sockets. Now, if, if he'd have just left it and said, I trust Steve, um, you know, then who knows? It probably wouldn't have been a good idea, because I'm not a trained electrician. Um, but at the end of the day, that guy, he went around and he checked. And he was responsible. He was the electrician with the qualification. He was responsible for making sure that each of those sockets were safe. So it's the same for us, actually. It's incredibly releasing for us, isn't it? When God sends us into the mission, when God sends us to people, we don't have to be uh, afraid, oh, I'm going to mess it up. Or um, I'm going I'm to set the house on fire one day. You know? No, it's okay. It's his responsibility ultimately. Uh, he will make sure that the job is done properly. Even when we think we've messed it up, often he uses that, brings it around, and uses it for good. So, verse 6. So, it says, um, he, asked, he asked Philip, where are we going to get bread? And in verse 6, he says, uh, he asked this only to test him, for he already had in mind what he was going to do. I thought that was really interesting. He wanted to test Philip. Um, and a test is different to a lesson, isn't it? A test is different to a lesson. So um, our eldest had his GCSE mocks a few weeks ago. And the night before your test, the night before your exam, is not the time for a lesson. It's not the time to learn. Maybe you've got time for some revision, but actually the time for the lesson has gone. You know, it's the, it's a, it's the time of a test. And here we see that actually... Um, Jesus is giving Philip an opportunity to um, to um, uh, kind of benefit from a lesson that he's already had. Because what was the first miracle that Jesus did? The water into wine. So Philip's seen Jesus turn water into wine. He's seen this situation where, you know, near disaster, they haven't got enough wine for the wedding. Shame, it would be shame on the family, shame on the village. And Jesus steps in, turns water into wine. Philip's seen that miracle. And now Jesus has given him an opportunity to take that learning and to put some of that into action. And now the disciples are a bit slow on the uptake, as we'll see. A bit slow to learn. They feel out of their depth. But it's encouraging, isn't it? You know, when you're going through, when you feel like I'm going through a test, it's not because, you know, Jesus is turning the screw, you know. No, it's because he's taught you something. He's put something in you that he's trying to bring out. He's trying to bring out um, and show you. Actually, you've learned something. You went through that situation. You've learned something from that. I've done something in you. I've changed you. I um, shared, I think last time I spoke, about um, that I was made redundant back last summer. And, um, but actually, it was because I'd gone through a similar experience a few years before, actually, where I'd, I'd, I'd been made redundant and um, I didn't know, you know, I was looking for jobs, couldn't find, jo- uh, find a job. And actually, God really met with me powerfully and provided for us as a family beyond 
our need, beyond our need. So this time, when I got that phone call saying, actually, Steve, you're being made redundant, I had complete peace because I'd, I'd been through that and I'd learned that lesson and I knew, do you know, I've been through that. And God's in control and God does provide. I'd seen it. So, uh, verse 6, Jesus already knows what he is going to do. Jesus already knows what he is going to do. And, you know, that's what, that's what Jesus said, isn't it, when he, um, when, uh, when he was teaching the Sermon on the Mount. He said, your father knows what you need even before you ask him. Even before you've asked him for it, he knows what you need. The wheels are already in motion. He's already answering your prayers even before you've asked him. And actually, he's using you to answer other people's prayers. That's part, that's part of it. He's using you to answer other people's prayers. Sometimes it's prayers they don't even know that they've prayed. People at work, they don't even know that they're praying. You know, when they're looking at that bill and they're saying, where's this going to come from? Or they're looking at their family and saying, how on earth can we reconcile this situation? Or whatever it is. And they don't even know who they're praying to in their desperation and their hopelessness. But God hears. God hears and he's sending you to be the answer to their prayers. In verse 7, Philip answered him, uh, it would take more than half a year's wages to buy enough bread for each one to have a bite. Another, uh, another of the disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, spoke up. Here is a boy with five barley loaves, two small fish, but how far will they go among so many? So we see two responses here. Philip's response is a, is a calculating response. He starts calculating, well, we had half a year's wages. Uh, we could get enough, maybe, just for them all to have one bite. And we need practical people in the church, don't we? We need practical people. We need people who can plan, who can budget, who can cost. It's essential. If we're going um, to achieve the mission that God sent us out to achieve, we need people like that. You know, the, the event in Solihull, the carols that we, that we ran with Renewal, um, you can't do an event like that if you don't have someone that can sit down, plan it, uh, look at the budget, work out how much is it going to cost to hire a PA and all of that. And, you know, luckily we've got people like Ruth and Tom who were able to work with Renewal and do that. And we, uh, we've got people like Trevor um, and we've got the trustees who are amazing uh, at this. But they don't stop at the numbers. I really want to honour the trustees, actually, this morning. Because our trustees, they don't just look at the numbers. They take that and they mix it with faith. They take that, they pray, they mix it with faith. Um, they look at the cost, but it's not... You know, people, I hate when people say, oh, faith, blind faith, blind faith, oh, it's blind faith. Faith isn't blind. Faith looks at the problem, but it looks at it, not with human eyes, looks at it with, with, with spiritual eyes knowing all that God can do. And I just want to honour our trustees. Um, we're not, yeah, yeah. So Leslie and Trevor, uh, John Marshall and um, uh, Steve Muneer and, um, yeah, and obviously Rob as well. So, yeah, yeah. So, but we, yeah, we, we they, behind the scenes, our trustees are amazing um, because often the elders will come to them and say, look, we want to do this. And we feel God's calling us to this, but it's a stretch. It's outside of our budget, but we really feel God's calling us to. And they will ask all of the hard questions, and um, then they'll say, okay, we're with you in faith, and we'll pray together, 
And time and time again, we've seen God come through and provide for us um, in those situations. But even our trustees would probably question, if we went to them and said, look, we're going to run an alpha lunch. There's going to be about 15,000 people there, maybe. Um, it's going to cost half a year's wages, so probably about, what, £14,000? Um, you know, I mean, that's, even that's going to take quite a lot of faith, isn't it? Do you know what I mean? And, uh, but I think sometimes we're, we're scared, aren't we, of creating expectation, you know, in the, in the workplace, in the office, wherever you are. And you say, I want to pray for that person. But if I offer to pray for healing and God doesn't heal them, I've created like this expectation. And then they're going to be like, well, God doesn't exist then. But, you know, we don't serve a one bite God, do we? Uh-huh. Our God isn't a God of one bite. Yeah. He doesn't give people one bite. No, let's go. Let's raise people's expectations. You know, God, we're called to be witnesses. Go and be my witnesses. Um, he's not calling us to go out and be kind of, uh, you know, and, and uh, you know, you might you might do some apologetics. You might you might um, you might talk theology, but ultimately we're called to be witnesses. When a witness tells what they've seen. A witness tells what they know, what they've experienced. Let's go out. Let's tell. Let's tell people. Actually, this is what God's done for me, and let's raise people's expectations because our God doesn't serve up one bite. Canapes. I had um, a, f- a friend at work actually, who um, a friend at work who um, he was distracted. Obviously, wasn't himself. And I anyway later on he said, "Look, I just wanted to apologise. I know I haven't been I haven't been um, quite myself. Uh, I found out yesterday my uh, sister's got cancer, um, and so my um, he said well, it's it's apparently secondary cancer. They don't know." Where it started, they don't know what the what the primary source is, so they're, they're trying to investigate that. So my reaction was to say, "Well, I'll pray for you." He knew I was a Christian. I'll pray for you, and he kind of looked at me, and he, he for lots of reasons, he's got lots of reasons not to be particularly fond of Christians or church. Or um, he looked at me and kind of said, "Oh, thanks." I think he appreciated the the sentiment. It was my way of of saying I'm thinking of you, basically. And so he said, oh, thanks. Anyway, um, uh, he left the company, um, but we texted, and I, I kept asking after his sister, and he would give me updates, and I would uh, say, well, I'm praying, I'm praying, and he would say, thank you. And then we caught up, we had a coffee, and I said to him, well, how's your sister? And he said, oh, he said, it's really strange. He said, the hospital think they made a mistake. I said, oh, really? He said, yeah, they, they couldn't find... They're, they can't find the cancer that they, that they thought they'd found the first, the first time. And then they, they can't find the, the primary source either. And she's completely free of cancer. So he said, that the, he said the hospital were really confused. Um, but he said, it's, yeah, he said, it's really good news. And I said, well, I was praying. And he looked at me and he started to just chuckle nervously. It was like, ha, 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 just laughing nervously because I don't think he'd put two and two together. And suddenly, you know, in his mind, in terms of, yeah, it was completely, you know, there was no space in that sphere for God. Suddenly, that kind of light had kind of punched in and it's kind of like, oh, okay, and there's something here that I need to start considering. Let's raise people's expectations because the, the, the temptation to say, oh, if I offered to pray for her and she dies... You know, but it's all in God's hands. Let's trust him and let's follow the leading of the Holy Spirit. So Peter, Andrew, not necessarily completely filled with faith. And then we find this boy in verse nine who's ready to give up what he has. 
He's got five kind of plate-sized flatbreads. Uh, he's got two fish and a kind of relish. Um, that's what the Greek words kind of mean. Um, so basically, he's got like a pack of naan bread and, um, and, and some fish chutney, essentially. <laughs> but he also has childlike faith. Childlike faith, which Jesus told us, if you want to enter the kingdom of heaven, you have to have childlike faith. You have to have faith like a child, because kids expect, don't they? When, I, when we ask, our, when, when we ask our, um, Isaac, our littlest, to pray, he will come back and ask, oh, did, you, did, did, are you, did that healing happen? Or, you know, he will come back and ask, and he will expect to be told, yes, God answered the prayer. He, and if he doesn't, actually, he perseveres. So um, often at night, he will pray the same prayers. And I used to think, oh, we need to teach him, you know, not to kind of, it's not a mantra, you need to, but actually what I've learned is, it's good to be repetitive in your prayers, it's good to persevere. He prays, he will pray and pray and pray until he gets an answer. And also, kids are outrageous, aren't they? Do you know what I mean? If you've got kids, you know, they will just keep asking you and asking you, and they expect you to give them stuff. Uh, And even when you say no, they don't really take that answer seriously. And that's good. That's how we're to be. Childlike faith with our Father in heaven. So this boy had faith. He had had childlike faith, but he also had spiritual maturity, didn't he? He had a spiritual maturity because a mature spirit is a spirit of generosity. I I can't imagine that this boy was the only person out of 15,000, 20,000 people who hadn't brought anything to eat. There must have been someone else there, if not more people who had brought something, you know, to nibble on the journey or, you know. But they were all holding on to it just in case. He's the only one that's willing to kind of give it over and trust Jesus. And that's spiritual maturity. You know, when you're at Christmas, if you're a parent, if you're a grandparent, you know, at Christmas, you don't kind of say to the kids, where's my, where's my present? What have you bought me? Push them out the way. <laughs> Uh, you know, and start opening your present first, do you? No, you know, you give them the present. You can't wait to see your kids open their presents. You can't wait to see the joy on their face. And if they've bought something for you, you kind of, well, you're happy, you're blessed. But you, to be honest, you know, what you really want to do is you want to see them opening their presents. That's maturity. So let's develop spiritual maturity in our lives. You know, let's be ready to help. Let's be quick to love, quick to serve, quick to forgive one another. Generous in our praise and encouragement. That's often a hard one, isn't it? To be generous in praise and encouragement in our culture, it seems. Uh, Let's love seeing other people blessed. And what do you have? Do you have your food? Do you have money? Maybe time? Encouraging words, forgiveness, willingness to lend something, willingness to listen. Uh, But maybe you're like Andrew. So in verse 8, Andrew pipes up. His question is, in verse 8, well, how far will it, can it really go? How far can it go amongst so many? Maybe you look at what you've got. You say, yeah, I've got a little bit of money. I've got a little bit of time. But how far will it go? How can I stretch it? How far will it stretch? Which is the question that I often ask myself when I'm looking at my T-shirts since Christmas. It's like, <laughs> how far will that stretch? Don't you? But yeah, But how far will this stretch? I've got to make this work. Do you know what I mean? I've got, I've got a tiny handful. The problem is overwhelming. But actually, the five loaves and the two fish, 
they're not the answer. They're not the end product, are they? They're the start. They're the start. It, yes, it does cost. It costs that little boy his dinner. It does cost loaves. It costs fish. It does cost us money. It does cost us time. It does cost us, um, you know, whether or not we get to see the end of our next Netflix series. Uh, it, it costs us emotional investment, actually. Often, that's, that's, that's the biggest thing, isn't it? When you're, when you're um, getting involved in people's lives. Actually, it's an emotional investment, an emotional um, cost. But it's a key that opens up a vault to God's infinite blessings, isn't it? It's a tiny key that opens up the vault to the treasures of heaven. It's like the pound that buys the Euro millions, the winning Euro millions jackpot ticket in comparison. You don't, you don't know, listen, you don't know the extent of the blessing that you have on people's lives. You don't know. Honestly, my mum was a single mum. My dad had left, had disappeared. Most of her friends had abandoned her. She was, she would say herself, neurotic. She was um, living on the poverty line. She was um, uh, scared of everything, living in fear. Um, she trusted no one. Um, she was in a real mess. She had two small kids. I think I was about two or three. My, I had, she had a baby as well, a little, my little brother. Um, and uh, we lived in a flat that wasn't furnished. Didn't even, a lot of it didn't even have carpet on the floor. Um, didn't have heating. Um, she was in a real state. And she had a neighbor who was a Christian. She had a neighbor called Barbara who was a Christian. Who used to come around and sit and listen. And be her friend talk to her, sit in the fog. My mum was a chain smoker. Sit in the fog of the smoke and just be with her. And over time, my mum saw something in her, saw Jesus in her, and she became a Christian. And so, I mean, Barbara, doesn't. she's not alive anymore. She doesn't know the impact that she's had. One family, you know, my family, my kids, you know, a cycle. So, so my dad left, his dad left, when he was small, a cycle's been broken there. Yeah? She, my, my, through my mum, my aunts, all my aunts became Christians. Multiple cousins, nieces, nephews that have, been, that have become Christians whose destinies have been changed. Um, I heard last weekend, I think it was, my, my, one of my cousins, one of my older cousins, who um, has never become a Christian, he went to church and responded to an altar call and gave his life to Jesus just last week. And that's not to say all of the people that we then go on to impact, that we go on to impact with the kingdom. Do you see, you don't know the impact, just, just giving time, just giving love, just give, taking the kingdom to one person, the, the exponential uh, uh, explosion of that um, on multiple lives multiple destinies that you won't know until you get to heaven. Jesus told a parable about that. He said, you will have a warm welcome in heaven. If you use what you have now for the kingdom, you will have a warm welcome. You'll have lines of people, Barbara, she'll have lines of people saying, oh, you're Barbara. Yeah, because of what she did, just in giving her time. She, 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 never, she, she died. She never knew the extent of her sacrifice and what it achieved. So... The miracle. Let's get, let's get on to the main event, the miracle. Okay, verse 10. Jesus said, uh, have the people sit down. There was plenty of grass. They sat down. There's about 5,000 men that were there. Uh, Jesus took the loaves, gave thanks, 
and distributed to those who were seated as much as they wanted. He did the same with the fish. So we see three things here about Jesus' provision. Uh, the first thing is that he made sure people were comfortable. Yeah? He said, sit them down on the grass. They're in a place where they're ready to receive. They're in a place of expectation, but also they're comfortable. I think often when we're with people uh, in our workplace, wherever that is, um, we feel like, oh, I've got to, I've got to tell the person, the, this person the gospel. Oh, and I also uh, need to give them my testimony. And, oh, I need to pray for healing for them if, if they need healing and throw in a few Bible verses for good measure. You know, we feel like, oh, I've got to, I've got to, I've got to get it all in. And it's almost like we're forcing it down people's throats, you know, that expression. And, you know, they're starting to gag. Actually, Jesus didn't do that. He didn't force it down people's throats. He gave them as much as they wanted. And that's really releasing for us, isn't it? That when we're sharing the gospel, actually, you don't have to get it all in. You don't have to give a three-minute gospel presentation. Oh, and now I have to explain sin because, you know, do they really understand what's the concept? No, you just have to love them. And as they come, you give them uh, what they want. You give them as much as they want. And if that's prayer, great. If they want to know your story, great. Uh, If they want a Bible, you know, people come and ask me, oh, actually, I'd like, I'd like to read the Bible. Can I have a, a copy of the Bible? Then give them a Bible and just trust that God's at work and they will, they will come and they'll eat as much as they want. The other thing um, that Jesus does is that he gives thanks, doesn't he? He starts by thanking his heavenly father for what he has, which builds faith, doesn't it? When you, when you look actually at what you don't have, which is our culture, our culture of discontentment is, oh, I've got this really nice iPhone, but it's not the newest one. Um, I better get a new iPhone. That's, that's how we're programmed um, in, in our society. Um, but actually, when we look at what we do have, that builds faith. Actually, um, God's given me this. He's given me a family. He's given me a car. I can pick someone up. Um, he's uh, given me a lawnmower. I can go and uh, mow someone's grass. or Whatever it is that God's given you, that's where we start. We start by thanking him. Um, and that's what, that's what Philipp, uh, Philipp, uh, Paul encouraged us to do in Philippians, that we've, it's in every situation, um, we, pre- we present our uh, request to God with prayer and petition, with thanksgiving. I used to read that verse saying prayer and petition and sometimes thanksgiving. So like if God does something, you pray, you petition, and if God does something, don't forget to write him a thank you card. Do you know what I mean? Oh, oh, by the way, God, thanks for answering that prayer. That was great. But no, it's... Prayer and petition with thankfulness. With thank- thankfulness runs for our prayer all of the time. Um, and that is what gives us the peace, that, that produces this peace that um, transcends understanding and guards our hearts and minds in Jesus Christ. Uh, thirdly, we see that Jesus... Um, oh, we've done that. Gives them as much as they wanted. Okay. So, yeah, so three things. He makes them comfortable. He gives them as much as they want. And he, and, he, and he gives thanks. In my, in my enthusiasm, I went on to a, a later point. I know. So, <laughs> so, yeah. So that's not the end of the story, though, is it? Because there was also provision for the disciples. There was provision for the disciples. So, verse 12. When they had had enough to eat, they said to, he said to the disciples, gather the pieces that are left. Let nothing be wasted. Um, so they gathered them up and they filled 12 baskets. They were kind of like the Greek word... And it's kind of like a hand basket, a kofinos, um, with like a backpack, 12 backpacks um, with uh, the bits that were left over of, um, of the five loaves um, by those who had eaten. So 12 baskets for, 12, for the 12 disciples. As we give, 
There's a blessing for us, as we said earlier. There's material provision for us. As we do the Father's will, that's food for us. It's, it's food. It causes us, you know, food enables you to grow, doesn't it? Food enables you to thrive. Without food, you become weak. Without doing God's will, you develop spiritual rickets, basically, don't you? But when we're doing God's will, we're energized, we're nourished, we become spiritually, we grow spiritually, we become spiritually stronger. Um, But maybe this morning you say, well, I've got enough of my, before, you know, other people, I've got enough of my own problems. but this, there is provision for you. This verse encourages you. That actually, there is provision for you. That in that place of mission, in that place of going, there is provision for you. There's healing for you. Unexpected financial provision for you. There's hope for you. Maybe you just think, I just need a bit of hope at the moment. I just need a, a light at the end of the tunnel. Um, there is that for you. So, um, so as we go to Jerusalem, Judea, to Mary, ends of the earth, we can know infinite provision for the mission. We don't have to provide it all ourselves, actually, but we go, um, we go, we carry that, the, the Abrahamic promise that we get blessed, and as I bless you, you're going to bless the nations. Yeah. All we have to do is give what we have. Um, 